Well, good morning to all of you. Welcome to Grace. Glad that you're here. And if you are new to Grace today, your first Sunday, or uh, here in the month of September, a special welcome to you. We're grateful to have you here. For all of us, let's get caught up with where we are at. For the last three weeks, we've been in chapter one of Paul's letter to the Philippians, calling this fall series Transcendent Joy. Uh, Today, we look at the last few verses of that chapter. If you remember, at the beginning of September, we looked at the first couple of verses and got some extensive background on this letter that Paul wrote. Uh, That included his historical situation, uh, the context of the city called Philippi, the proclamation of the gospel we find in Acts chapter 16 in that city, and then the beginnings of the church. And we highlighted some of the key features, key themes of the letter. Namely, joy, unity, suffering, gratitude, and gospel. The last couple of weeks, we've looked at the two big sections in the middle of chapter 1, from verses 3 all the way down to verse 26. We've seen a couple of things, namely this, that spiritual parents are personally invested in the health and success of their offspring. That's true physically, all the more spiritually. And then last week, the presence of opposition invites the privilege of opportunity. Let me say that again. The presence of opposition invites the privilege of opportunity. Turn your Bibles there to Philippians chapter 1. I hope you brought a Bible. In fact, if you have a Bible, uh, hard copy or digital, wave it in the air so that I know that you've got something that you're checking me out on because we want to hear from God. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll put a hard copy in your hands. You see our host there in the aisles. Uh, That's a gift to you if you don't own a Bible or on loan to you for this morning if you just forgot yours. They also have uh, copies of the worship program, which has notes on the back here. And I would encourage you to take some notes as God speaks to us uh, this morning. You can also access those at gracepolaris.org slash program to follow along. Before we read and and study these last verses in Philippians chapter 1, I want to draw your attention to a great resource called the Bible Project. It's a ministry that has given uh, visual overviews of the books of the Bible as well as certain themes in the Bible. And we've taken a little clip from their work on the letter to the Philippians that outlines where we've been the last several weeks. Take a look. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, 
that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul realizes that the Lord has chosen for him to live and therefore he will live for Christ. What does that look like? We get into that this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to read the last uh, few verses of Philippians chapter 1. We stand in honor of God's word because we need to hear from God. I'm reading from the New International Version. Paul writes, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Thank you. You may be seated. Today, I'd like to focus on three characteristics of gospel people, both then and now. And you can follow along in the outline. Paul's writing, of course, to the Philippians, but he's writing for us and all who follow them. And Paul gives here not only descriptions, but expectations of how gospel people live, how they conduct themselves as ambassadors in this world. Paul's tone here is warm. It's encouraging. It's inviting the Philippians to live out what they profess. And Paul wants us all to succeed as we live all for one, that is Christ, and all as one, that is together. First point in your outline, gospel people live consistently in light of their identity. Gospel people live consistently in light of their identity. The the last few sections of Philippians 1, Paul has been reflecting on his own circumstances and the big picture plans God has for him and how God might use him if he continues to live, especially in the Philippians' lives. And now he turns from his own situation to the situation where the Philippians find themselves. And the first sentence right out of the gate, chapter 1, verse 27, acts as the topic sentence, not just for what we read, but for a large section of the rest of the letter. If there are verses worth committing to memory in Philippians, and there are many, you could make a good case that this is at the top of the list. Philippians 1, 27. Paul begins with the word in Greek, mono, and we get that, M-O-N-O, in a lot of our English words that means singly or, or alone or one, only. It's as if Paul is holding up his hand, as if he's raising his finger to say, I want you to hear this, only this one thing. The ESV says only the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, maybe the translation you have says just one thing. The NIV, where I'm reading from, with a bit of interpretive license, says, I think, accurately, whatever happens. And by the way, there are no exceptions to life 
in whatever happens. There's no scenario where this doesn't apply. In all things, in everything, in each situation, Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It applies, this applies across the board. Christian believer today, there is never a situation in which you can disregard life worthy of the gospel. No timeouts in the Christian life where the gospel doesn't matter. The gospel of Christ provides the motive and the pattern for all Christian behavior. And so Paul's primary imperative, his command, his exhortation is found here. Clear enough, live worthy, walk worthy. And that's a a phrase that we hear a number of places in Paul's letters. Paul's not referring to our claims. He's referring to our conduct, our behavior, our lifestyle, what we do on a daily basis. But that's not exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul actually uses a different word than he normally does that doesn't quite come out in some of our English translations. It's there, but it's not altogether vivid. It's kind of like looking at TV in black and white, but if we know what's behind it, it's seeing it in color. Having multiple translations, which is a good way to read the Bible when you can, actually helps us understand things more clearly. The, The Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, captures this verse, I think, most clearly. Just one thing... As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy. As citizens of heaven. That that word Paul uses twice in the New Testament means to live as a citizen or to discharge one's duties or obligations as a citizen. And if you hear that and you think, well, that sounds like there are some civic, maybe even political overtones to what Paul's saying, you would be correct. Knowing Jesus will relativize your other allegiances. Knowing Jesus will relativize your other allegiances. Remember the city of Philippi. We saw this several weeks ago. Philippi was a Roman colony, and the citizens of Philippi actually enjoyed uh, citizenship in the Roman Empire with all of the privileges therein. Philippi as a city was modeled after the great city of Rome. Style, architecture, coinage, language, Latin, even some of the clothing. And maybe most important for our purposes, there were a lot of retired army veterans who lived in Philippi. So to say that Philippi was a patriotic city, loyal to Rome, full of allegiance, would be an understatement. At every public event it would have occurred in the context of giving loyalty, allegiance to the emperor, acknowledging that the Caesar was the Lord and Savior. They use those words. And the Philippian residents, the citizens, wanted to be loyal citizens of the Roman Empire. So it begs the question, was Paul's call here, the gospel call to the believers to live as good citizens, was that warmly received by them? Look at the next phrase, worthy of the gospel of Christ. We've highlighted many times over the gospel of Christ. And if we put it in summary fashion, we could think of these four things, our creation and accountability as his image bearers to God, our sinfulness and our just condemnation under God. 
God's intervention in Jesus Christ, his sinless life, his death as our substitute, his powerful resurrection that offers salvation and our necessary response that we repent of sin and turn in trust to what Jesus alone has done for us is a summary of the gospel. But how do we live worthy of the gospel? The word worthy means to balance the scales, a kind of consistency where the demonstration of our life matches the declaration of our life, where our walk matches our talk. Or maybe a better example, it means to be in alignment. Most of us have driven cars before, and a car that is in alignment, you don't notice much. It's smooth and you go straight. But a car out of alignment is always pulling in a certain direction, may have some bump to it. To, to live in alignment means to live consistent, smoothly between what we confess and how we live. Paul says we're to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. But what about our earthly citizenship? Christians throughout the ages have wrestled with this concept that theologians called our dual citizenship. On the one hand, we are residents, most of us citizens of a particular country. But if we know Jesus Christ, we also become citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Paul tells us that later. We're going to read that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is where? In heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have loyalties to both, to be sure. But they are not equal. And the Bible repeatedly warns us not to conflate the two or to give them equal priority. For they are not. It's concerning, I must admit, what some churches do publicly to place God and country on the same level. They're not. See, when our church gathers, we gather in the name of Christ, not country. Jesus is Lord. It's even concerning what many believers do to place God and country on the same level. What's more important to you? The advancement of the gospel or the restoration of our country? Honestly. Here's another test. Check out your social media postings. If more of them highlight your earthly citizenship and its concerns, society, politics, government, and so forth, than they do your heavenly citizenship and its joys, then you might be misaligned. The heritage of our church, our fellowship of churches, has been careful to regard our earthly citizenship in ways that don't undermine our heavenly citizenship. Russell Moore in our day says we can be Americans best when we realize that we're not Americans first. And he's right. We have to be vigilant not to confuse the two. Paul's words here are, are instructive. It's true uh, to live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ does mean to be a good citizen of an earthly state, but it especially means to be a good citizen of our heavenly identity. Hansen says their good conduct as citizens in their heavenly colony, the church, will be a brilliant witness in their life as citizens in Philippi, a Roman colony. And that remains true for us. We just substitute the, the city of Columbus for the city of Philippi. 
how we live as this heavenly colony on earth speaks volumes about our allegiance and about our concern for where we live. Justin Taylor, in something I read recently, says this well. He says, the church of Jesus Christ is the institutional expression of the kingdom of God in this world. Heavenly citizens join local churches on earth. Through baptism and membership, we publicly signal our role as ambassadors in kingdom outposts that we represent and worship the eternal king, and we invite others to do the same. When we express our allegiances to him and with one another, we signal to the watching world to whom we belong. And that's consistent with what Jesus said to his first followers. He said how we live and how we identify with him actually bears witness to our allegiance to him. Matthew 5, verse 13 and following, you've heard this before. You're the salt of the earth, Jesus said. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Philippians were challenged by that. They were likely getting backlash from their neighbors, from governing authorities who wondered about their commitment, their loyalty to the empire in light of their allegiance to Christ and the gospel. And Paul knows that and he's instructing them how to live as kingdom heavenly citizens on earth in the middle of Caesar's empire. Paul says you must be clear on your king. Friends, our calling in Christ, not our culture's call, is what should determine our conduct. It's our heavenly identity that determines the priorities in our life. Benoit writes, the Philippians are to be true to their membership of that new city which has Christ as its king, the gospel for its law, and the Christian as its citizen. If we wanted to put that into military terms that some might be familiar with, what he's saying is Semper Fi for Jesus. Always faithful to Jesus. There's an old poem that goes like this. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day. By the deeds that you do and the words that you say, men read what you write, whether faithful or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? Take note that what Paul writes here is not a big, long list of rules to follow. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that is our motivating variable. The gospel gets us in and the gospel moves us on. The gospel provides our pattern for life. It's not that we somehow earn God's favor with back payment as we live for him. No, the gospel is a gift. It's that we demonstrate with our lives that we already belong to him and have received that gift. So what would it look like for you, for me, for us to live out our kingdom 
identity, our, our, our gospel calling. That's what Paul fleshes out in the next verse or two, beginning in verse 27 at the end in verse 28, gospel people stand together in light of their opposition. Gospel people stand together in light of their opposition. Paul's in prison in Rome. And Paul expects, hopes to see the Philippians again. And he's sending, as we'll see later, Timothy and Epaphroditus to get a status report on them and to tell them that he's okay, that he's bearing witness to Christ. But Paul doesn't know for sure that he's going to see them again. There's no guarantee about his future, and that matters because Paul has just given them here an overarching, all-encompassing, significant command. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves as good citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what does that look like? How's Paul going to know? How are they going to know? Beginning at the end of verse 27, Paul defines three aspects of their lives as citizens, which will give evidence of their lives for Jesus. Number one, stand firm in the one spirit. Paul uses this imagery of standing firm several times in his letters. To stand firm means to be so so planted, so rooted where you are, that whatever winds or waves come in life, you're not easily blown over. You're not easily toppled by opposition. The picture here is of Roman foot soldiers who are digging in, who are preparing for battle, who are, who are preparing for the onslaught that may come. In our day, since we may not be as familiar, we might think of a football team and an offensive line where the linemen are standing there side by side, counting on each other for the onrushing of the defense. Each individual lineman is dug in and stands united. I think we have a picture of that here. Uh, you may have seen this in recent days. Lots of football. I like this one in particular because it's the Green Bay Packers who are going to get blitzed by, it looks like, the Minnesota Vikings. And as a Chicago Bears fan, I would love to see Aaron Rodgers get decked in that picture. Um, (laughs) But we won't go there. Go Bears against the Browns today. I'll just say that. Paul adds that this standing firm is in the one spirit. Now, spirit in the original, is never capitalized. We have to decide from context whether this is uh, a person's spirit or collective spirit or the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And for a lot of reasons, if we look at Paul's writing, including in this letter, I believe he's referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person and the sphere because he dwells within us that we live out our faith, that we stand firm. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the basis for our unity. Being one in Christ is a result of the one spirit who dwells within us. And he's the one who gives us the power for our teamwork. Paul's described what it means to stand firm in the spirit of the gospel And now he describes an offensive and a defensive posture to which that testifies. Secondly here, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now striving or contending has kind of an offensive perspective. It 
pushes toward forward movement. When we efface, attack, and opposition, we strive forward with the gospel. In fact, according to Ephesians 6, we are in a spiritual battle. The gospel is our message. The word of God is our sword. Faith is our shield. In other words, God does not call us simply to hunker down and to hide out in a cave as we await the rapture. We're called to engage with the people of this world with the good news of the gospel, the urgent news of the gospel. And the manner in which we do that as Jesus followers is unity. Much of the effectiveness of our witness is connected to our unity. See, when it comes to the gospel, it's not just that we present a united message. It's that we present a united front. Paul describes the local church here in Philippi, and by extension, us, as striving with one soul. That's his exhortation. And that was modeled at the very beginning of the first followers of Jesus. If we go over to Acts chapter 4, in the early days of the early church, they're described as this. All the believers, verse 32, were one in heart and mind. Literally one in heart and soul. They, they demonstrated a unity. And that's what Paul calls the Philippians and us toward. Make no mistake, this kind of unity requires some things. It requires persistence. It requires humility. It requires intentionality. We're going to see some of that next week. But this idea of being one soul as a local church means we have a common mindset, a common purpose. It means that we as individuals, as part of that team, refuse to have our own plans and to railroad them through as if the team was only us. Dr. Matt Harmon says, like teammates who set aside individual glory for the success of the team, believers must set aside individual agendas for the common good of the team. Have you ever been on a team comprised of individuals who are more concerned about their own glory, about their own stats, about their own voice, about being right in the team huddle? Whenever a professional team with multiple egos gets together, and by the way, that's probably redundant. They're all like that. I root against them. Why? Because those kind of teams aren't fun to watch. They almost always underperform. They don't play well together. They're in it for themselves. They don't trust each other. A lot of life is like that now, isn't it? Nowadays, the circle of trust, the circle of unity in relationships in whatever team we're a part of seems to be as small as ever. But the church of Jesus Christ can be different. The church of Jesus Christ must be different. That we would choose to stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul, please here with the Philippians, and with us for unity. Tragic it is, especially in the last year, 18 months, so many people have forgotten the power of unity and solidarity within local churches and have either abandoned their connection or decided they're just going to find a new team. Paul knows that our common witness matters 
and solidarity does too. Third, verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Paul acknowledges that there's opposition. There are people out there who are persistently opposed to your spiritual health and to the gospel faith that we represent. In Philippi, these were likely people outside of the church, uh, pagans there in Philippi, who would use persecution or the threat of it to intimidate the believers. You can imagine that scenario in Philippi, a loyal to Rome patriotic city. At, at every public gathering, there was probably some kind of pledge to the emperor, a kind of high Caesar. Everyone's expected to pledge. And there was enormous pressure on the Philippian believers who were now submitting to Jesus as Lord. There was great cost to their profession. And they knew that there could only be one Lord, one master who had their ultimate allegiance. And therefore, the question was, which one would they choose? Paul writes here literally, in no way letting your opponents intimidate you. This word used only once in the entire New Testament is used elsewhere in ancient Greek to describe horses that are frightened and that, that uncontrollably run away. They, there's a stampede. They're spooked. Paul's saying here to the Philippians, don't be spooked by those who mock you and threaten you and intimidate you. Don't be scared by their tactics their threats. Don't back down. Don't compromise. Don't give in in any way. And Paul said, listen, I've been an example to you. You remember when I was there in Philippi in jail. You know that I'm in Rome now in jail. And I will not back down to the secret service of the empire, to the elite troops of the Caesar, and neither should you. After all, Philippians, you're standing side by side. You have each other. You stand together. You resist together. If need be, you suffer together, maybe even die. Think of a, a phalanx of people who fight in close ranks. Think of honorable police forces who stand in riot gear with an oncoming mob of people. They're saying there you have to knock all of us down if you're going to knock any of us down. Dr. Harmon applies this, whether it's verbal or physical abuse, ridicule, loss of possessions or loved ones, or even the possibility of dying for one's faith, the believer is not to be frightened because of what opponents of the gospel do or threaten. It doesn't mean we have to enjoy suffering or that we're masochists in the face of it. It does mean that we refuse to compromise or be paralyzed to, to renounce our faith. Paul says here, verse 29, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. Their steadfast faith gives evidence in the present of their future salvation and gives warning to those who watch of their future destruction. God wins in the end and they will persevere together. Third, God's gospel people suffer well 
in light of their salvation. Gospel people suffer well in light of their salvation. Paul concludes with a reflection, a theological framework for what they are enduring or will endure and what he is already enduring. He begins with a statement that we would readily accept. As believers, it's been granted to to you, to us, on behalf of Christ to believe in him. Yes, God has given us the power to believe in him. It's a gift from God. But but as Paul's writing here, it's as if he stops mid-sentence to insert something that won't be welcome but must be said. It's not only belief, it's not only faith that comes from God. God has also granted us the reality of suffering. Wait, you say, suffering's been granted to us by God? Can that be? Yes. In fact, it's an evidence of God's grace. This verse literally reads, for it has been graced to you on behalf of Christ to suffer for him. To suffer on behalf of Christ is actually a privilege given by God. Mike, you're going nuts. Paul, you're going nuts. Are you kidding me? In fact, the logic of this verse goes even further. Believing in Christ will cause suffering for Christ. Paul says elsewhere, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the grace of God gives both the ability to believe and the ability to suffer for Christ. And the presence of Christ is in it all. This shouldn't surprise us. Because Jesus said this from the very beginning. In the Sermon on the Mount, as His followers were beginning to align themselves with him. He said to them, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say things, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If Paul's gone nuts, then so has Jesus. This is what it means to follow him. See, what Paul writes shows us that God is the responsible agent for the whole situation. God's the one who sends the persecutions we must undergo. The, the, The resistance which we need to confront them. The assurance of salvation that follows. God's not AWOL when we suffer. The grace of God allows suffering so that we might bear witness. Well, as you can imagine, for the Philippians, this was difficult news, just like it's difficult news for us to hear. Just like it's been difficult news around the globe and throughout history for followers of Jesus. And Paul knows this. And so he communicates to them one of the greatest comforts that believers can share with one another. The comfort of solidarity. I'm experiencing this struggle too, Paul says, and we're in this together. Have you ever noticed it's amazing what people can endure when they know they're not alone? And the Philippians aren't alone. They're not alone together, and they're not alone because of Paul. Paul's in the deep end of suffering with them. What they're experiencing or what they will experience, Paul is with them. They know that because they've seen him in Philippi, and they hear of him 
in Rome, suffering. Paul says, I have the same struggle. It's the word uh, that we get our word agony from. He's wrestling with the difficulty of opposition. See, Paul knew this firsthand. He knew that this was the calling of Jesus to those who would follow him. He, he knew of his suffering in Philippi, and he called it in another letter outrageous what they did to him. He knew he was in prison now because of his allegiance to Jesus. And he told the Philippians that their witness to Jesus would prick the consciences of those who watched and even persecuted them. That it would pierce the consciences of those who claimed patriotism to Caesar and the empire. And it would show where their loyalties were. New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien says it's likely that the Philippians' suffering was due to their purity of life and their consciousness of high calling in Christ Jesus, which were a constant challenge and rebuke to their pagan neighbors. Paul's words here are not primarily about suffering in general, the kind that we all experience by virtue of our humanity. Things like financial pressures and health concerns and broken relationships and unfulfilled dreams and the loss of loved ones. Things that you and I have experienced and will experience in some measure in this life. Paul's direct concern here is for believers suffering for the gospel. Suffering because they live in a world openly hostile to God, resistant to the love of God in Jesus Christ. And Paul says there's a price to pay for boldly living for Jesus. It includes frequent rejection, sometimes suffering, periodic persecution, and for some, martyrdom. And yet, Paul says, we can embrace the calling of Jesus for the sake of his glory. There's a story told in Acts chapter 5 near the beginning of the early church of disciples in jail. It seemed like a common occurrence. The disciples kept finding themselves in jail. Paul understood that. They, they were forbidden from speaking about Jesus. And as they were in jail, God opened the doors and they went right back out to the temple courts to proclaim Jesus. They were again accosted. They defended themselves. There was a, a meeting of the religious leaders where they were divided. And then the apostles, the disciples, were released. But before they were released, they were flogged again. They were whipped. And here's how the account ends. Acts 5.41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. It's almost as if Paul was quoting them. Day after day in the temple courts, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. No wonder then that Peter, who was there in Acts 5, could decades later write to Christians under his care and say, live such good lives among the pagans, 1 Peter 2.12, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Because of your loyalty to Jesus and the priorities you show and your perseverance in suffering and your declaration of hope, you declare Christ in your life. Let me ask you the question. Let me ask us the question. 
Are we experiencing spiritual opposition and blowback for our identity with the gospel? If we're identifying with the gospel, the assumption of the New Testament is that we will endure blowback and suffering. Are we? Are we experiencing difficulty because of lots of friendly fire and carnal sniping within our midst? The sad truth is, many times, including in recent times, the church of Jesus Christ has been at each other's throats over foolish things rather than standing together side by side in the face of legitimate gospel opposition. That brings glory to Christ. Friendly fire does not. Suffering for the gospel is Paul's focus. But suffering in general is our reality as well. And sometimes suffering by itself can bring gospel opportunities. Suffering well can fuel our opportunities with the gospel to those who watch. Pastor Zach said this week, our own suffering, whatever it is, often gives us the best opportunity to display the gospel in our lives. And he's right. I want you to hear this final story with encouragement as, and as an example to follow. Susan Kaiser was a lady in our church in recent years. You may have remembered her in a high-tech wheelchair that she came in with her husband, Dan, to many of our services. She had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, for at least a handful of years. And if you know anything about that, it's an excruciating, debilitating disease that no one should ever wish on their enemy. But Sue was undeterred. She was one of the most joyful, hope-filled human beings I have ever met. And I only knew her in the midst of ALS. She embraced this as God's path for her. And as her son and my good friend Scott Kaiser tells it, at one point his mom, Sue, had a doctor who was an avowed atheist. And undeterred, she gave him a Bible. And she found out later from a nurse who has connections to our church that the doctor not only took it, but cherished it, even if he didn't believe a word in it. In her final months and weeks, Sue was often in hospice care. One of her nurses, who came from a difficult background, had been raised Catholic. Sue was winsome in sharing her faith in Jesus Christ. Here we had a dying patient with a younger nurse, and Sue gave her Bible. On one of Sue's last visits to hospice, little strength, little voice, she determined that she was going to witness to this nurse using the Romans road, but the unsuspecting Sue didn't know that the nurse would beat her to it. She dropped a Bible in Sue's lap and asked her how to read that. And in that conversation, Sue asked the nurse, if she, the nurse, knew of her own salvation, and she answered no. And then and there, Sue shared the gospel message with her. And in hospice care, the nurse prayed to receive Jesus Christ and became born again. Why? Because one woman recognized God's hand on her life. One woman acted in concert with others, took advantage of the prayers from others for her and her witness. And she shared Christ in the midst of her terrible suffering. She understood that together with other believers, in this case, together with Grace Polaris Church, 
that we are citizens of heaven whose lives shine while deployed on earth however long Christ gives. And that's our calling. That's Paul's invitation to the Philippians. That's God's invitation to us. All for one, Jesus Christ. All as one, together. Are you all in that mission? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your calling on our lives, and we thank you for your love in our lives. Thank you for the example of Sue and Paul and millions who have gone before us, that their life belongs to you, and that while they have breath, they will live well and witness courageously to you. Help us to be those kind of people in the places where you have us, and help us to do it together all for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.